following sermon was recorded during the Sunday morning gathering of Grace Community Church in Las Cruces, New Mexico. We are a group of Christians that exists to joyfully extol and magnify the true and living God, to faithfully proclaim the Christ-centered word, to build each other up by speaking the truth in love, and to bring the good news of the gospel to our city and world so that the Lamb who was slain may receive the full reward for his sufferings. For more information about us, please visit gcclascruces.com. Well, if you will turn to Psalm 51, we're going to continue our study through Psalm 51. Last week we looked at verses 1 through 6 and Today we're going to be looking through at verses 7 through 12, 7 through 12 of Psalm 51. What I'd like to do is start by reading God's word. Psalm 51, we'll read verses 1 through 12 before we dive into our text, specifically verses 7 through 12. And it's with great joy then that I can read God's word for you this morning. The title of Psalm 51, To the Choir Master. A psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in, the inward, in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, before we dive into verses 7 through 12, I would like to give us a little refresher of where we've been. So we're going to look a little bit both backwards and we're going to look a little forwards as we look into our text for today. But a little review of what's led to where we are. Where have we been thus far? Well, last week we looked at the first six verses of the psalm. The psalm being a response of David after having been confronted by Nathan, the prophet, in reference to his sin. As you remember, last week we read from Samuel the storyline of David being confronted by Nathan. Nathan comes to him with this story of two men, and a rich man and a poor man, right? And he says, what should you do in this situation? Because the rich man had wronged the poor man. And David says, well, surely he should be put to death. He should be punished for the crime that he had committed. He should be strung out in front of the people to be embarrassed for this awful, evil thing. And Nathan looks upon David and he says, you are that man. 
You are this man that is taking what is not yours. You are the man that has the abundance of all of the blessings of God, and yet you have chosen to take from someone else. And he was speaking specifically about his sin and taking Bathsheba and then killing her husband Uriah. When you think about that story a little bit, it's so wild to think that not only did he... I think we kind of consider the fact of he committed the sin and then his immediate response is to cover it up by killing Uriah. But no, he tries to hide it in multiple fashions. It's like he knew exactly what was wrong and he just compounded upon it. And so as Nathan approaches him and he says, you are that man. David cries out for mercy. And this psalm is then penned in light of that. And as we will continue to see today, he pours out his love or pours out his heart before the Lord in both this very personal but general plea for forgiveness. Last week, as we looked at verses, uh, the first six verses, we saw David's repentance. There was three areas that we kind of looked at. First, the presence of sin in verses 1 and 2. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David acknowledges that sin is present. It's taken hold. You begin to wonder, and we don't have this from the text, but as David had committed this sin both in the adultery and in the murder, thinking that he may have, for a brief moment, been free. He may have gotten away with it. He could just move on, pretend like it didn't happen, like he was even the righteous man by taking Bathsheba into his home to care for her. Think about the sins that then crept up. The other sins, not just these horrendous sins of adultery and murder, but The fact of, well, if I can get away with that, what else can I do? Maybe I don't need to be as active in these things. Can slack off in certain areas. Secondly, we saw the pain of sin in verses 3 and 4. He says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. He sees the pain of his sin. His sin is ever before him, as he says. It's as if it's cast a shadow upon every aspect of his life now. As he's had to address the reality of what he's done, it's just totally altered his view of the world and how he interacts with everything. Against God and God alone has he sinned and done what is evil in his sight. And he says, Lord, your your judgment is right. You're blameless. You're justified. And so if David was to be struck dead at that very moment, God would not be to blame. There would be no shame in that. That would not be the wrong answer by God. The pain of sin, the reality of 
the impact of our sin. And third, the profoundness of sin we saw. Verses 5 and 6, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. He was brought forth in iniquity. Sin is everything that he's known. He's always been sinful. There's no doubt about that. And as we talked about, it's not like he's throwing shade back to his mom and saying, well, mom, you're the one that made me this way. No, his sin was his own. And he would be responsible for that sin. And he says, this sin is so profound. And Lord, the only answer is that you delight in truth and the inward being. You teach wisdom in the secret heart. So as we closed last week, I invited you to join with me in examining our own sin, as David was called to do by Nathan. To acknowledge sin, to see the pain of our sin, to see just how profound our sin was. However, in so doing, we are not just to sit there lifeless and paralyzed by the reality of our sin, the weight of it holding us down like the, we're holding the earth on our shoulders, but rather confess it. Turn to the cross where believers today can be forgiven through the righteousness imputed to us by Christ. It's our only means of salvation, friends. It's the only way that we are made right by, with God. It's our only means to be renewed. Like us, David saw that there was literally nothing that he could do on his own. There was no work that he could do. There's no money that he could pay. He couldn't buy the forgiveness of God. He could work the rest of his days doing, quote, good deeds, right? Good actions, things that are righteous. And yet he would still be justified in sending him to hell if God so chose. Rather, he must cast himself right before the Lord and plead with him for cleansing and renewal. He's confessed his sin. And then he can only be made right with God by his grace. Which will bring us to our text today. David throws himself at the grace of God and pleads with him. And we'll see that there are two areas in which he pleads with God. And that will break up our text for this morning. Verses 7 and 9, the pleas for cleansing. And verses 10 through 12, we'll see the pleas for renewal. So 7 through 9, pleas for cleansing. Verses 10 through 12, pleas for renewal. So with that, let us dive right into this first section of text. He starts in verse 7, Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. As David writes these few verses, he acknowledges a very important factor. He cannot be cleansed by the sacrifice. Leviticus chapter 4 speaks of a leader who has sinned offering a sacrifice in the temple before God for forgiveness. But there was an interesting caveat to that. It was for sin that was done in ignorance. 
or without intention. David, though, he's willed. He had a willing sin against God. As we just briefly talked about, it's not even that he had committed adultery. That was bad enough. He willingly did what was deemed wrong in the eyes of God, deemed evil. But then, to cover it up, he brings back Uriah to try and encourage him to be with his wife so that he could cover up the sin because she was pregnant. Uriah, being the faithful man that he was, said, No, I'm, I'm obligated to a job. I don't have time for this. I need to be back on the battlefield. I need to be back serving you. And so what does David do but has him killed? He tells the men to pull back from Uriah so that he can be swarmed. And so David is, David is willingly sinned against God. He knows that what he has done was a direct and deliberate act. He cannot go and offer a sin offering now that, that requires something more. He needs something else. If he was to do that, it would be like offering a strange fire before the Lord. It would be like coming before the Lord in a way that he is not deemed to be acceptable. And so he says, I can't do this. So what's the only way? How is he to be made right? And it's by direct forgiveness from God. He must be washed clean from his sin because he cannot sacrifice as the means of achieving it. He must throw himself upon the God who has, he has acknowledged thus far as being filled with steadfast love, abundant in mercy. The God who he knows is correct in all of his judgments. David must simply seek the Lord for forgiveness. He cannot enter back into the sanctuary and he cannot be made right to have a right relationship with God till he is cleansed from his sin. And so as he seeks this cleansing that only God gives, he relates back to the ways in which he knows the Lord. And we'll see him use a lot of kind of metaphorical language to help him understand or help us understand as he relates back to God, how he's known God and interacted with God. He calls upon the place that he desires to be, the sanctuary, because God's presence is there and he wants to be in the presence of God. And so he begins this section by saying, purge me with hyssop. He starts by asking God to purge him, to cleanse him, to wipe out any filth within him. And he uses the term hyssop, right? Hyssop being this plant that was commonly used for ritual cleansing. Atonement ceremonies. We see it in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 22. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in that basin. We're talking about in Egypt, right? None of you shall go out of the door of his house until the morning. This hyssop branch being used to spread the blood that would cover the people and protect them. Leviticus chapter 14, there's numerous laws and they talk about laws specifically for cleansing of lepers and of houses. And what do they use but hyssop branches? Numbers 19, they talk about laws for purification and there's hyssop branches. We just read John chapter 19 that a hyssop branch is what was used to put a sponge on to give wine to the Savior as he hung on the cross. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 19, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, 
He took the blood of calves and goats with, scarlet, with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. So David is relating to something of cleansing. He's relating to something that he knows is used specifically for a cleansing ritual, to clean something. So was God going to actually physically take a branch of hyssop and purge David? Beat him with it until it was gone? Well, no, right? However, David is acknowledging his need for purification. He knows that he must be cleansed so that he can enter back into the sanctuary of God. And he knows that by God's purging with hyssop, he says, I shall be clean. The result of the purging would be that he's made clean. He hearkens back again to those rituals and numbers in Leviticus. And he says, if you do these things, at the end of each of these purification laws, he says, they shall be clean. He shall be clean. That's how they end all of them. It says uh, for Leviticus, for the lepers, they do this ritual ceremony and they are declared to be clean. Purification, they are declared to be clean. And so he says, purge me with hyssop so I shall be clean. I'm like a leper that needs to be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. He uses a sort of parallel to what we saw earlier. He cries out, purge me. And now he says, wash me. What is the result of the washing? That it will be made whiter than snow. The color white pointing to this purity and holiness. We see the color white. We just read Revelation chapter 7. The white robes, they were washed in the blood of the Lamb and they were made white. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you think being washed in blood would make them red or black, dark. But yet, no, they're made holy and pure and so they're white. Daniel chapter 12 and verse 10, Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. Matthew chapter 17 and verse 2, at the transfiguration, and he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light, holiness. Matthew 28 and 3, his appearance was like lightning, and his clothing was as snow, it was white David was saying, you wash me and I'll be whiter than the snow. Many of you may not experience a lot of snow, right? Coming from southern New Mexico, we don't get snow very often here. But if you ever have been in a very snowy place, when you look out on the sun hitting it, it's probably one of the most painful things you'll look at. It hurts the eyes. It's, it's shocking. You'd think that looking at the sun is painful, but then you look at fresh snow as it glistens off from the sun, and you can't look at it without crying. Not tears of joy. These are tears of pain. It hurts. And David says, I'll be whiter than the snow. It's pure. It's bright. It's clean. It's God's perfect creation. And David says, I'll be made purer, brighter, cleaner than that. 
And he continues, he says, let me hear joy and gladness. David asks the Lord, let me hear joy and gladness. But where would he hear that? It's not some party with friends. It's not the laughter of people in the streets or kids playing. Everything, as he said, has been clouded by sin. Remember, he said, my sin is ever before me. It's like a shadow has been cast and there's nothing that seems joyous anymore. There's nothing that seems right anymore. If you've ever experienced moments of stress or anxiety, you know these situations, right? You get invited to a family party or a get-together with friends. And you're sitting at the table, maybe eating a meal, and everybody's laughing. And yet you can't find joy. can't find happiness there. Because your mind is just caught up. Your mind is racing about other things. That's what David was experiencing. He was saying, everything has been clouded by sin. I don't see joy. I don't see gladness. And he's like, let me see joy. Let me hear it. Let me hear gladness. But where is he going to hear that? He's not looking for the streets. He's not looking for his friends. No, he's looking to the place where joy and gladness are heard in the praises of God, the sanctuary. He desires to hear that glorious joy and gladness as people offer up their praises before their God, the God of their salvation. It's like coming here on a Sunday morning to hear fellow believers praising God. However, for that to happen, David must first hear the most glorious, joyful words You are forgiven. He must know that he has been cleansed. He knows that he must be renewed. It brings me to this thought of just the reality of our own sin. David, thinking as he cries out, he says, I desire to hear joy and gladness. But the sin has cast a shadow over it. Friends, that's where we all are without Christ. We may think that we are living in joy and gladness, but we really aren't. If we are without Christ, we are living in darkness. The shade has been cast over us. The weight of God's wrath remains upon us. Joy and gladness is the other side of salvation. Repentance and faith brings joy and gladness as the right response. That's where true joy and gladness comes. That's what David understood. That's what we are called to understand. And he says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Now we have nowhere in the text to suggest that God had physically broken any bones in David. There's no physical affliction. Mind the fact of his sin causing him probably torment. But rather, it seems that saying the bones were broken, he's talking about his inner being. It's to his very core that he feels crushed by the weight of his sin. Some, script, some translations use that word crushed. I like that translation a little bit better just for the imagery of it. Not saying that one is right or wrong, but more just for the imagery. 
There's a sense in which a bone is broken and can be mended, but crushed needs to be completely rebuilt. Needs to be completely remade. David is going through a sort of spiritual depression. It's like in Psalm 32 where David writes, I keep silent and my bones wasted away. He was obviously still very alive, but he was inwardly dying, drying up, feeling like everything was just crushing him. And so he cries out and he says, My inner man has been crushed under the weight of my sin and my guilt. And as we saw in this preceding line, it's only by God's forgiveness that he can be renewed. It's only by God's forgiveness that David, in his entirety, both spiritually and physically, can enter back into the rejoicing of the sanctuary. It's only by God's divine mercy and grace that God can be made right with him. David says, I need to be clean. I want to hear joy and gladness, spiritually and physically. I want to be in the presence of God. And he says, continuing on, hide your face from my sins. He concludes this section by repeating his plea for forgiveness. He says, hide your face. Anthropomorphism, putting an attribute to God of a human characteristic. He says, hide your face, turn away from my sin. Cover it up. Don't look at it. Don't pay attention to it anymore. Put something over it, please. Put something over it. The only covering those found in God's forgiveness. What a beautiful reality for us, right? As New Testament believers, David is looking upon this God of his salvation, knowing that there's something else, knowing there's a Messiah down the road, but we know the Messiah. We know the Chosen One. We know the Son of God who died, whose blood was poured out as the covering for our sin. And so when we cry out to Him, we say, hide your face from our, from our sins, we can say, you have. You've covered them. You've placed something over them so you don't look upon them. No, you see the righteousness of your son. He says, and blot out all my iniquities. He uses the same word back in verse 1, blot, to wipe out or to remove completely. He says, all of my iniquities. Doesn't just claim the sins of adultery and murder, but everything. Acknowledging that there's more than just that. So frequently when we have some sin that maybe is on our mind, as David probably did with this very psalm as he writes it, it's like we need to seek forgiveness for that. And that's good. We need to be specific with our sin. We talked about this last week. It's so essential that we are specific with sin. Because if we're not, we can never put it to death. Because then we never really know what sin is. We never really address the reality of our sinfulness. We just say, Lord, you know I'm a sinner, so can you forgive it? Well, what's wrong? What are you doing that's wrong? How do you stop from sinning if you don't know what sin is and what to avoid and how to stop it? And so he says, cover all of my iniquities. Blot out all of them. It seems there's two reasons for that. One, God in his sovereignty wants us to have freedom 
to pray with this psalm for our own sins, right? He, the reason why he's so generic in this section, not just labeling list by list by list, is he wants us to be able to join in with him. Though we could do just that of praying for our sins of adultery and murder, but we need the freedom to point at each one of our individual sins. And secondly, we should all be seekingly, seeking for forgiveness for each and every one of them. All sin matters. It's not just these, quote, weighty sins. We put sins on these hierarchies and we say, well, that's, you know, as people say, the white lie, right? That's not a bad lie. It's, it's a white lie. It's okay to lie just a little bit as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. Well, it's better to not hurt their feelings, so I'll just tell them a little cover-up story. It's like gossip, right? Coveting, idolatry, all these things are all sins before the eyes of God. Every sin matters. We must seek forgiveness for each and every one of them. And so David closes with that. For his pleas for cleansing, he says, Hide your face from my sins. Blot out. Remove. Cleanse me from my iniquities. And now turning to verses 10 through 12, we see his pleas for renewal. And he says, Create me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and, not, and take not your spirit Sorry, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. What we find here is it's not just enough to, in a sense, ask forgiveness. There has to be a change of heart. We looked at repentance last week. We saw this cry for forgiveness, the removal of the stain of sin, but David must acknowledge that he must be cleansed and renewed to do what God has indeed commanded him to do. He sees the sin and the impacts of his sin. He knows the reality of his sin is at the very core of who he is. And so he says, I must be made right. He must be made new. And he seeks the Lord's cleansing to wash away the sin. And now he seeks the Lord's renewal that he might establish them back in right relationship that he could then be long-term restored back into the ministry that God has called him to. And so he says, create me a clean heart, O God. David sees what the problem is. It wasn't just the actions, right? It's not just the actions. And Christ does this very well in taking specific sins and expounding upon them against the Pharisees. He doesn't say, it's, it's not just that you didn't commit adultery, the fact that you had lust. It's not that you didn't just not, you didn't murder, but you've had anger and that's, that's murdering in your heart. He looks into the inner man and so David says, create me a clean heart, O God. He had seriously thought for a brief moment he could just move on with this. He could be free from his sins if he just kind of allowed time to pass. But no, he now must acknowledge him and he realizes it wasn't just my actions. It wasn't enough because I could stop. I could never murder again. I could never have, I could never commit adultery again, but my heart needs to change because the desire is within me. 
My willingness to do those things were because my heart was willing to do those things. My ability to complete them was because my heart was wrong. It all flows out of the heart. This, not this physical organ, rather this mind or the spirit of man. He's talking about the true depths of who he is on the inner, inside. Speaking about who he truly is as a man. It's who David really was. It's really who we all, all really are. Outside of Christ, without this renewal that comes in Christ, we're all just like David. Our hearts are filthy and they still are even as we are saved. They need to be cleansed and renewed. Sanctification ongoing as we cleanse out the filth that takes over. This filth that has been built up over years. It's so crazy to think to ourselves, I can never be like him. As my brother Kent and I were talking about, this is not to say that you are David. So don't, don't take this in the sense of you are David and you'll have some Goliath you need to slaughter or something like that. But rather, you are David in the fact that you're a sinner. Don't think it's foolish to say, I'll never, I'll never commit adultery. I'll never murder. No, friends. Not only in the heart and in the mind do you already do those things. Have you already done those things? But the sad reality is we're all capable. Our hearts are dark, wicked places without Christ. Without the ongoing sanctification that comes in the saving work of Christ. So by crying out for a clean heart, he is acknowledging the very nature of what needed to be renovated and renewed. And he uses the word create. The verb here is always a work of God. It's not something that is separate from God. It's used in the book of Genesis as he talks about the creation of the world. It's used in reference to Israel, the establishment of a nation, the creation of a nation. It's used in Isaiah 65 to talk about transformation or renewal. I create new heavens and new earth. And then spiritual creation, spiritual renewal. We see it here in Isaiah 57 as he speaks of healing someone. This is a work of God and God alone. So David is saying, the only one that can make this possible, the only one that can take my desires and make them a reality to create in him a new, fresh, clean heart. A heart that has been renewed, that has removed the filth of sin, the stain of his guilt. A heart that desires to love and obey the Lord's commands. David says, Lord, you're the only one that can do this. Create in me a clean heart, O oh God. And renew a right spirit within me. Coupled with his new heart, David asks that God renew a right spirit. Renew to resume what has been maybe interrupted. Asking God to give fresh life to his spirit. Seeking that God revive him. 
It's almost as if he's dead in this very moment. He says, God, please revive me. Renew within me a right spirit. I don't know that my spirit has any ability now to do what is right. I need you to give it to me. I need to be renewed with a right spirit. Some translations use words such as steadfast instead of right. And David uh, desires just that, a spirit that is unwavering, steadfast, dedicated, firm, reliable. Seeks to have a spirit that will continue in obedience and holiness moving forward. Cast me not from your presence and take not your spirit from me. We come to the negative side of David's pleas. Not just in the nature of what he says, but in the actions, right? It's this removal that he's fearing. He says, don't remove your presence. Don't remove your spirit. Surprisingly, in this verse, we come to one of the more difficult ones of Psalm 51 as questions began to arise. You read different commentators and they'll all say different things about just this verse. A lot of them have similar thoughts throughout the rest of the text, but this verse specifically. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. How do we understand what David is saying here? Do we understand, and do we understand this in light of the larger context of Psalm 51? What does it mean for us? And briefly, I want to break down just... I don't like to do all of this, but break down just a few ways this has been interpreted, just for your understanding of it. Some say David is looking upon what happened to his predecessor, Saul. 1 Samuel chapter 16 and verse 14, this is right after David has been anointed. And it says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. The Spirit then being removed meant that Saul was no longer king. Not in God's eyes. He was not under the blessing of God to execute the specific service or ministry he had been placed in. Some argue against this as they say, since this is sort of a corporate prayer, as we've talked about, this is kind of a general corporate prayer that we can all join in praying, it wouldn't, it wouldn't include something so specific as a role like a king. David was praying as one who was saved and under the eternal security of God, that's the second view. People say, no, he's not praying about his kingship or any of that. He's praying as a person who is saved under the eternal security of God. And John Calvin argued that this verse points to the fact that David knew he had the spirit of God. Even after his sin. And that David did not have to really pray this way, but was responding in a kind of a right manner. A manner of true sorrow. Calvin says, it is natural that the saints, when they have fallen into sin have, and have thus done what they could to expel the grace of God, should feel an anxiety upon this point. But it is their duty to hold fast to the truth that grace is the incorruptible seed of God which can never perish in any heart where it has been deposited. It is, the natural, it is natural that the saints, when they have fallen into sin and have thus done what they could to expel the grace of God, should feel an anxiety upon this point. And so that's the second point that some people have argued. And thirdly, dispensational thought would say that the Spirit acts in completely different ways in the Old and the New Testament. 
The Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon a person. It would be on the person, but not within, as the New Testament speaks of in Acts. And therefore, the New Testament believer does not need to include this in their own personal prayer. The Old Testament believer would, but the New Testament wouldn't. And so what do we do with these three things? How do we understand it? Well, it seems that there could be a mix of all of these. Yes, David could be writing this based on his experience of seeing Saul. He could look back on Saul and say, I know what you did to Saul, Lord. I don't want that. I have sinned against you and I don't want to be like Saul. He saw the spirit removed from Saul and he thinks, I don't want to lose my anointed place, God. I don't want to be under your wrath. I don't want to be tormented as Saul was tormented. Yes, Calvin is right to say that as believers we are saved by God's grace and that we can affirm this biblical truth of the perseverance of the saints. And David, being saved by God, would not necessarily need to pray that. But was experiencing a very real feeling that we all have. Have we not all in our sin cried out to God and said, Lord, please do not cast me away. Please do give me another chance. Please help me. Do not take your spirit from me. And yes, the spirit is the same. God is immutable. So the spirit is the same, but the understanding of the Old Testament believer versus ours today may be different in the revelation that we have versus the revelation they had. The Lord is never changed, right? The Lord never changes. He's always immutable. He's always the same. But we have other books that we read. We have all of these New Testament books where we see the Messiah. We see the salvation that comes in him. David was looking forward. We're looking backwards. And so what does this mean for us? Well, the truth remains the same. The truth remains the same. If you're not a believer, then the wrath of God remains upon you, as John 3.36 says. However, if you are a believer, then you are made a new creation. The Spirit then dwells within you. And it will not be removed by your sin. But our sin does have an impact on our relationship. Our sin does have an impact on our service to the Lord. And so this very difficult verse leaves us really just asking the same question. Lord, please don't remove your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from us. Please allow us to continue to just grow in you. Not that he would cast you away if you're a believer. Not that he would remove his spirit. But just crying out to the Lord. Lord, I desire to be with you. Lord, I desire to know you. And he finishes off this section of text. It says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. David cries out in his desire, his need for renewal, that he be restored or brought back to the joy that is found in the salvation of God. Salvation being his proper relationship with God, being renewed, being able to find the joy that comes from that right position. It's not to say that David needed to be resaved or that the 
He had lost the saving grace of God, but rather his desire to see the joy that is found in that salvation. Being forgiven and set free from the very guilt would be the first step towards that joy. How contrary to our world. If you listen to any type of media, TV, uh, radio, music, even podcasts, books that are made by worldly creators, those that are not saved, and even some of those that are saved, sadly. They would teach that you find joy in the pursuit of your own desire. That frequently involves sin. They're, the world is much just Satanists putting themselves as God, worshiping themselves instead of the one true and living God. However, we find in this passage something else. He says that's not the case. Sin, he knows this, David knows this. Sin brings misery and sorrow. But righteousness, righteousness brings joy. Sin destroys and strips you of everything, but Righteousness restores. It builds you up. And so he says, restore me to the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. He continues by seeking that the Lord would provide him with a willing spirit, one that would be sustained, that desires to honor and obey the Lord's commands. He knows that he does not have the ability to do this on his own. His desire was there. Mind you, he's, he's just been confronted with his sin and says, Lord, I don't want to do this again. I don't want to be here again. This is not the place I want to live. He knows that. But he says, Lord, I know that I can't do this on my own. Because if I try to do this on my own, I will surely fail. Friends, it's so true of even us today with our own sin. If we try to do this on our own, we will surely fail. We must be upheld with a willing spirit by the Lord. And so that should be our prayer. May we be sustained with a willing spirit. And so we come to the end of our text for today. So what do we do now? Last week we saw David's acknowledgement of sin and seeking the forgiveness of God. This brought us to a place of self-examination. But what about today? What are we to do with this now? The reality is we're all in need of cleansing. Ultimately, that cleansing comes from Jesus himself. As 1 John chapter 1 and verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. We are cleansed by the blood. The only means of our salvation, Jesus Christ. By his life, his death, his resurrection, he made atonement for sin. His righteousness then can be imputed to us lowly sinners. And we can be made righteous. It's not to look righteous. It's not to seem righteous. It's to be made righteous. Though we are sinners, we can be justified, right? Simultaneously, Justified and yet a sinner. Simulhustus et peccator. 
And so with that, if you are a believer, cast your sins before the Lord, knowing that you are forgiven, knowing that the blood has been poured out upon you, washing you, washing those robes white. Know that you have been cleansed by the blood and seek the renewal to do what is right. Not as a means of earning your salvation, but rather as the right response for the salvation that has already been earned for you. On the other hand, if you are not a believer here today, listen, please. If you do not know the Lord today, listen. You find yourself in a very precarious position, a scary spot, you might say. And this is not the type of scary, like a horror movie, where you can run away. This is not the type of scary spot where if it's dark in the room and you think you hear something, you can turn the light on. No, this is a scary place where if something doesn't change, you will die, you will spend eternity in hell, and the wrath of God will be poured out upon you. The wrath of God remains upon you if you are not a believer here today. And it's only by acknowledging your sin, as we talked about last week, confessing that sin and putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your only means of salvation that you can indeed be saved. It is through this process of repentance and faith that one might be cleansed or made new, renewed. It's only by repentance and faith that you can be made righteous to do what is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. And so as we close, do, please, take time to consider your standing with God. We should all have assurance, yes, if we are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we should have assurance. But God's word also says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, and then find hope in the salvation. If you find it, sorry, it says to examine yourself. It is good for us to examine ourselves. It is good to search inside and ask the question, are we in the faith? If you are, then great. Find hope in that. Find hope in the salvation of your Savior as you seek to put to death sin. Be renewed day in and day out to serve the Lord. But if you examine yourself and you find that you are not, if you examine yourself and you find that you have not truly trusted or you've never even heard this and this is new, then find hope that you can confess and believe in Christ and you too can be saved. You too can be made righteous. You too can experience eternal life with the Lord.